just thank you so much for that truth. That God, as you breathe your breath into our lungs, God, man became a living being. God, we thank you that with the very same breath you breathe into your word, that your word is living, that your word is powerful. God, we just ask that you'd speak, that you'd move in this place. God, thank you so much that this is just so much more than information. <laughs> it's not information on a page, God, that you are, are tangible, you are here, you are with us. And Jesus, we just ask that the word, that the word that you've spoken, that the word that was made flesh would just be so real. So speak to us, God. We just invite you in this place. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just do something within us individually and within us as a community to be those who just want to restore, to seek and to save that which is lost, to join you, Jesus. We do want all nations to know you, to praise you. We do want every tribe and tongue and people group, and we believe that. We know that. We, we see that in the future. We see that in Revelation, God, where all tribes and tongues are worshiping you. We thank you so much for that truth, Jesus. We just praise you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. I know some of you love this time. Uh, please be friendly. Please be outgoing. Meet someone new. Don't wait for someone to go to you. You go to them. Craig. <laughs> Meet someone new. Go. I'm watching. All right, hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Only once you've met someone. I know that that is your favorite time for some of you. You love meeting the same person over and over. If you've met someone more than three times, it's time to ask them, like, hey, we should probably get coffee. We meet each other every week. Like, it's time to do that. Um, hey, we're in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So let's, let's actually do this. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one so you can follow along with us. But Nehemiah, we're in chapter 2. So turn to Nehemiah 2. Again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some people passing out Bibles here. Uh, I think it's around page 226 in the Bibles we're passing out. But Nehemiah chapter 2. Again, if you're new, welcome. My name is Josiah. I would love to just meet you after and say hi, so please stick around. Uh, today is a special weekend. You, you heard it mentioned. Um, this will be our first mission trip team that we send out internationally as a, a church community. Um, so I'm looking really forward to that. So here's what I want to do. I actually want to call them up here. We want to pray over them. We want to ask them, have them like, share a little bit about what's going on in Haiti. So if you're going to Haiti, can you come on up here and we'll pray over you and talk for a second. Give it up for our Haiti missions group, uh, mission trip team. Hey, buddy. You guys go this way. Sweet. Hey, guy. What's up, bud? Uh, so this is our team. We got a crew. We're actually partnering with Avenue Church uh, in Delray Beach. We're going to go down there together and partner uh, with Lifesong, a ministry that's down there. There we go. Hey, Brian. Um, I have Taylor here. Taylor and Silver are going to help like, lead the trip with just Avenue Church. And so, Taylor, can you just tell us what is going on? Uh, tell us about Lifesong. What are you guys going to be doing there? Uh, let, me, let, me, let me get that on for you. Sorry, I tricked you. Give it for Taylor Grippo, everybody. We love Taylor. There we go. <laughs> Our 
That's awesome. So Life Song, and we're going to Avenue Church. Can you just tell everyone, too, just what do you want to see happen? Like, what can we be praying for? How can we be praying for you guys while you're gone? What do you hope to see accomplished? Awesome, thank you. Well, let's do that right now. We're going to pray over this team. It's our first group going out uh, internationally, and so if you guys would just extend your hands, and we just want to pray over them and cover this trip. Father, we just, um, we do want to thank you, God. First and foremost, God, without you, um, we would not be here. Without you, God, I mean, this is the good news. You, God, are the good news, that we get to have a relationship with you. And Jesus, I just ask that you'd be with this team. Remind them always of the gospel. Remind them always why they're there. God, we do want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Um, God, we just do ask that you give the team here discernment and wisdom, what to share, what not to share. God, how to bless and, and how to love on the people appropriately. God, help, help us just be a blessing to Lifesong as they just do long-term work there. Um, we just want to be a blessing to them, Jesus, and help build what they're already building. So Jesus, just go before this team. We do pray for safety on the flight there and back and just traveling around, God. Um, Lord, we just thank you for the missionaries, again, that are currently there. And Jesus, we just pray that this, this team here would be a sweet-smelling aroma of you, of the gospel. That while they're there, the people would just sense your spirit over this group. That Jesus, you would save people. That you would heal people. That you would challenge this team here. That God, they would be put in some uncomfortable situations so you can show up. So that you can get the glory. And so God, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Give them new gifts even while they're there. Things they've maybe never seen before, let them see. And we just pray this, Jesus. We look to you. We know that, um, God, you love this group and you love the people there more than we ever could. And we're just so thankful we get to join you on, on, on this mission. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Can you give up one more time just for our team? Thanks. Very excited for them. Please keep them in your prayers just throughout this week. That would be awesome. So Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Again, turn there if you're not there. Uh, we are in like week 3. We're going to be in the middle of chapter 2. Let me kind of catch up to speed. So as we approach Nehemiah, we're just calling this book Holy Ambition. Um, we do believe, and I do believe that as we talked in the first week, ambition gets a bad rap. We know that selfish ambition has been used for some terrible things. It's, it's caused a lot of pain and brokenness in this world. But we do see in the Bible this idea of holy ambition, where a really good desire meets a greater God. When people want to take risks for God and his kingdom for his glory, not their own, there's something about holy ambition that we see God honor. When someone says, let us go, let us take the land, even though there's giants, God says, it's our land, let's take it. There's something about a holy ambition. And so we do want to just kind of approach it from that standpoint. And so my hope is this. We don't want to just go through a book and just kind of every week get talk through a book. We want to actually approach this in a new way. 
in a way where you say, God, show up, speak, do something fresh within our community. People here might be sent out. People here might plant churches. People here might do different things. We just want God to do that. Um, should I get a new microphone? Do you hear that squealing? Probably should. Yeah? So I see everyone's like, ears like shrieking right now. Nathaniel, should I stick with this one or should I use this guy? Turn off the other one. Taylor, if you have that, if you could turn that off, it'd be awesome. I don't hear the squeaky noise anymore. Are we good? I think we're good. All right, cool. Sweet. Um, so that is our desire. Our desire is that we would take risks again for God and his kingdom. So let me just kind of catch up to speed. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Uh, he's the guy who's at the king's right hand all the time. High trust. The king has a lot of trust for Nehemiah. Nehemiah has some people come back from Jerusalem, and he goes, tell me about Jerusalem. What is it like? And they go, it's in ruins. It's in shambles. God's name is a reproach there. It's, it's mocked there. People aren't really following God, and our, our city's broken down. And Nehemiah weeps, and he fasts, and he prays for four months. And last week, we see him approach the king, and the king goes, why are you sad? What's wrong with your face? And he's like, well, how can I not be sad when my people are suffering? And so the king says, so the king sends him with resources. The king sends him with an army. The king sends him with basically everything he asked for. Unbelievable favor he asked from the king. And so last week, we talked about the king's favor. And we relate that to how our king, he sends us with provision. He sends us with protection. How our king says, go and make disciples, rebuild my kingdom on earth. And so when we look at the story of Nehemiah, there are, there are a lot of comparisons between Nehemiah's brokenness to rebuild God's city, the city of Jerusalem, and how we are to rebuild God's kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. And so I, I'm very thankful for what God is doing in our church and our church family, this book and this season. Like, this is what we, I think we need to be walking through. And so as we approach this, again, as we talk about holy ambition, let me just clarify again. Christianity is not Buddhism. We're not trying to eliminate all desire. We're trying to redirect desire to the right things. We're trying to redirect desire to further God's kingdom. And so as we, we pray over this and as we go over this, I really am hoping and praying that God stirs within your hearts a new vision. So the title today, in the end of chapter 2, what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at a vision that works. A vision that works. We see a vision that works, and there's kind of two meanings to that. If you see the title, write that down, a vision that works. In one way, it's this. This is a good vision he has. It's a vision that works. It's a good vision. But secondarily, it's a vision that gets to work. He has a vision, and it's time to get to work. Maybe you've been around people, they have vision, and they just talk about their dreams all day long, but it, they never get to work, and that's very frustrating. It's like, man, you're a big talker, but you're not a great doer. Uh, other people are great about doing stuff, but they don't even know what they're doing. They're just, they're just doing there's no vision to what they're doing. And so we're going to see here a vision that works. And so we want to look at the work that Nehemiah is specifically doing. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 20, and we'll pray and look at it more in depth. Nehemiah chapter 2. Here we go. So he says, I came to Jerusalem. Big deal. He just left the king. He just left the citadel. He just left the palace. I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose the night, and a few men with me, I told no one, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode, and I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse or the dung gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and I went to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass, just in, in ruins. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews 
the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. He didn't tell them what he was doing. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. And also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So the people said, let us rise and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sinbalat and uh, the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Before we pray, uh, we're also going to cover chapter 3. We're not going to read chapter 3. We're going to read about the families that help build the city walls and build the gates. And that's going to be kind of like one overview point. If you want to go back, I want to encourage you to read chapter 3. It's there for a reason. But we're going to kind of look at this idea of what Nehemiah can do when when it comes to work. And we learn a lot about our work and building God's kingdom here through this section. So let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, again, we just, um, we just thank you that you've given us your word, and your word is truly a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. A- and God, I just ask that you would be here, that you would speak, that you would move. And God, I do ask that you just remove distraction. That Jesus, we, we want to hear from you. Let this time be about you, Jesus. Let this be about your word. God, I ask that you would just ignite hearts today to see the brokenness around us, even though it might not be always physical or whether it's emotional or spiritual. Jesus, we just want to be those who see the need and meet it and help us do it not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. We ask, Jesus, that you just be here and speak in your name. Amen. Helen Keller said, I know it's a great way to begin a sermon with Helen Keller quote, It's not the normal Keller I quote in here. I know, I feel like I'm cheating. Um, Helen Keller said, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but has no vision. Said from someone who is blind. I want you to hear this. The most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. You know, that word vision can be thrown out, I feel like, in a lot of different contexts and ways and in different spheres of life. Uh, When I was in high school, I was a point guard, and I, I would like to think that I had good court vision that I would look ahead and kind of see how the play was developing and who's cutting and who's going where. And I like to think I had really good vision. My wife thinks I have terrible vision. She'll send me to the pantry or the refrigerator, and she's like, can you get the milk? And I'm like, I can't find it. She's like, it's milk. It's giant. I'm like, I don't. Where is it? Ter- I do. She's not wrong. I have terrible vision. I'm the guy that talks on the phone. It's like, where's my phone? Like, you're talking to me on the phone. It's terrible. Um, but vision can be used in many different spheres. And here, here's the idea. Sight is seeing things the way they are, in a sense. We have sight. We just see things as they are. Vision is seeing things the way they could be. Vision is refusing to see things the way they are. You see, we see that Nehemiah has a vision and a vision to work. And and here's what I want us to talk about because I think this is so key for us. Nehemiah had a vision for the city. Nehemiah had a vision for his life. And for you and I, we, we have to talk about this. Like you have to, myself included, we have to come to this conclusion of, God, what is your vision for my life? Let me ask you, like, why were you born? Why are you here? I think early on in my Christian faith, this is what I really wrestled with the most, is like when Jesus really captured my heart and my time and my emotions and everything, like, okay, Jesus, you got me, I'm all in. 
And I was like, now what? Like, what do I do? Like, what is my calling in life specifically? And here's what I want to, like, clarify, because the more I meet with people and the more you you talk to people, pastor people, I want to say there's almost, like, two tiers or two stages to God's vision, to God's will. Like, let's think about tier one. Tier one is this. Um, We know God's will for us. The Bible says it over and over again. The Bible will say, this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, what? Your sanctification, your purity, that you be holy. This is the will of God, Romans 12, that you give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, that everything of you that you have is just God's. You give it back to him. There's many scriptures that we have with God's will, and here's what we have to see. I'll talk to people, and they go, I want to know God's will for my life. Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go? And it's like, start with tier one. Is your body a living sacrifice to God? Are you giving your life, are you being set apart for God and his purposes and his work? Before you get to tier two, answer those questions. For this is the will of God, that just in everything we pray, and everything we just seek him and praise him. How do we start with that? It is interesting, because I do, again, I'll talk to people, and it's like, I just want to get married. And I'm like, first, you need to stop sleeping around. Second, you need to get off, off, off those porn websites. I want to grow in the power of God. Get off your phone. I want to experience God's powerful life in my life, and I want to experience this growth. Okay, you need to forgive that person that you're holding on to bitterness to. There's things that we want God's will for our life. We want tier two. We want stage two, God's specific will. But my question is, are we first and foremost obeying God's general will for our lives? You see, there's a desire. God's desire is to seek and to save that which is lost, right? Jesus even said, that's why I've come. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus told us to seek first, what? To seek first our careers, to seek first our faith, like seek first what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. The idea is let's start with that big vision of God. And then as you grow in that, let's get it into more specific areas of our life. You see, we want to see the restoration, the renewal, God making all things new. We want to join him in this process, amen? That is our hope. There's a Chinese proverb that I thought was very helpful. I'll throw it up here. Uh, It's been said, if your vision is for a year, plant wheat. If your vision is for 10 years, plant trees. If your vision is for a lifetime, plant people. And that is our hope. We want to have a vision for a lifetime. We want to plant people. We want to invest into people. We want to see people's lives changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? And this can't just be one person's vision. Like, church, I really hope, like, we want to join God in his vision to seek and to save the lost, to renew all things. That's what we get to join him in. And so as Nehemiah has this vision, this vision from God, it's a vision that eventually works. It's not just a vision that, that works. It's a good vision, yes, but it eventually gets to work. So we can't be those who, like, let's theorize all day and sit around and brainstorm. Like, eventually, that vision has to work, and it's a good vision. So let's talk about work today. Let's look at this when it comes to the vision of God, the vision for us, the vision for our community, and how does it apply to just how we work and how we carry it out. So five things. We're going to walk through the text, and this is what we see here. We see the work is paused temporarily. The work is examined very thoroughly. The work is good. It literally says that. The work is mocked, and the work is memorialized. We'll see this even into chapter 3. So, the work is paused, the work is examined, the work is good, the work is mocked, the work is memorialized, and we see how this right here applies to our work still today, and how we work and build God's kingdom. So, let's look at the first one. The work is paused. Verse 11, it says what? So, I rose to Jerusalem, so I rose, or I came to Jerusalem, and was there three days. Okay, I know, first off, we could really easily just kind of brush over that, keep moving on. But, like, I feel like we have to, sp- have to pause. Nehemiah, for four months, is praying and fasting. 
when can I speak to the king? He speaks to the king. King goes, go. Take my army, take my provision, go. He has a four-month, 900-mile journey to Jerusalem. Four months. Four months of still thinking, of playing out this vision, how will it work, how will it go. He has a call from God on his life to do something incredible. He has a call from the king to go and build, and he takes a three-day vacation. And I think that is so good. And honestly, what we need to hear, what I need to hear, is just this idea of rest, of rest. I think first and foremost, I, I might be the person, maybe you're this type of person, where as soon as you get there, you go, let's get to work. There's a lot to do. Nehemiah goes, I need to slow down. I need to rest. I need to scope out the land a little bit. And there is such wisdom in this. Let's just talk about this for us as Americans. We as Americans love to work. Uh, most people don't even take all their vacation. They give back their vacation time for some weird reason. We're just crazy this way. Uh, I think it's because we find our identity and meaning in our work. I think we might find more identity in our work than we do maybe in God. And so work for us can become our God. And we love to work. And, and it's just bizarre how kind of it plagues us or management or upper management and then no one takes a break and we have terrible rhythms and patterns in our life and eventually get burnt out. I think this is so good for me to hear this. I think this is go so good for you to hear this today. I think what's dangerous is this. I could definitely, and you could definitely, we could all work 80 hours a week. We could. I, I could work 80 hours a week. It would actually make me better probably in the moment. I could probably preach better sermons, meet with more people, disciple more people, plan better calendar events, execute them better. I could probably work 80 hours a week and there'd be a lot of good in the short term and temporarily. But in the long run, it's going to burn me out. It's going to put bitterness between me and my wife between my kids and God. In the long run, I'll probably be done in a year or two. See, same thing with you. We could all do this. We could all work and work and go 80, 90 hours. But guys, we want to be in this for the long haul. Like as we talk to our team and as we're praying for this, it's like, I want to see God do a work that's going to be much la long after I'm gone here in South Florida. And the point is, we, we sometimes just have to slow down and rest. We have to get better rhythms and patterns into our life. I'm praying that it's not just maybe one week or two weeks a year you have this, I'm praying we introduce this idea of rhythm of rest into our lives. So let me ask you, do you have the rhythm of rest? Do you rest and still turn off your brain? Like when you rest, do you just go to your phone and rest? Do you go to social media and rest? Like when you rest, do you actually find true rest? What does that look like? What does that mean? Do we actually Sabbath the way God intended where we enjoy him and worship him? Here's a verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, just to let this sink into our hearts on this first point. Hebrews 4, verse 9, it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Can we just acknowledge God rested? Can we acknowledge on the seventh day when after God created everything, he rested? That when Jesus is on the cross, he says, it is finished. And he gave up the spirit. The idea that the, the price for salvation has been paid for, that God paid for our sins already. He doesn't need to rework at that. We don't need to rework at that ourselves, that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Hebrews 4 is all about the people of Israel entering into the promised land, the land of rest. And he says, listen, they entered into the promised land, but guess what? They never really rested. They can enter into this thing that God promised them, but true rest was found in Jesus. The rest of us trying to save ourselves Rest from us trying to be right with God. We can never do that. God paid for that. We enter into his rest, the promise of his rest. When we just say this, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, has probably one of the biggest building projects ever, and he rests for three days. And I'd say, let, let us rest. Let us be a people who Sabbath well. Amen? 
I think the work is really good, as we'll talk about, but first the work is paused, and he's like, let's take this in. And number two, it's a similar thought, but the work is examined. The work is examined. Read verse 12 with me. So he keeps going after he rested. It says, then I, I arose in the night, and a few men with me, and I told no one what my, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by the night through the valley gate to the serpent well and, and the dung gate. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the, the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me, under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the, by the valley and I viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. The work is examined. This is really interesting to me. In verse 12 and verse 16, he goes, I told no one. No one knew why I was there. The king knew. The people who went with me didn't know. The Jews didn't know. The priests didn't know. No one knew why I was there. Now, what I love about this is this is so anti our culture. He has a really good call. He has a really good vision. And he's like, and I kept, I play this one close to the chest. See, I'm the kind of person where I like to uh, process out, out loud. Maybe you do too. And like in the way of processing out loud, maybe you share things. It's like, oh, that's a little premature. Um, I think that we do this as soon as we get a good idea. We're like, oh my gosh, the Twitter world needs to know. All my Facebook friends need to know my great quote. Listen, world. And sometimes, not like that's wrong all the time, but there are times where we go, God, this thing you place in my heart, it just needs to stay between me and you. It's when Mary hears Simon, you know, prophesy over Jesus as a baby. And she says she's pondered these things in her heart. She had kept it close to the chest. There's something really powerful about God giving us vision and saying, let me wait to communicate that. Let me not communicate that yet. I believe the number one strategy of the enemy and just of terrible people is to kind of hear us speak too soon about our vision. And they go, okay, great. Now I know how to corrupt that. Now I know how to get in that and mess with that. And I think there's something about waiting. So, for example, Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a son named Joseph. He had a lot of brothers. Joseph had a very unique call of God. He has this dream, right? And if you remember, Joseph's dad one day goes, Joseph, what's going on? He goes, Dad, I had this dream. The sun and the moon and the stars, they all faced me and bowed towards me. And Dad, I think that means you're going to bow towards me. He's like, what? What's going on with you, son? The Joseph goes to his brothers, like, hey, Joe, what's up, man? He's like, listen, brothers, I had a dream where you were bowing to me, and I cannot wait for the prophetic fulfillment of this dream. Like, you think about this, it was a very true vision, very true dream, but he did not have the emotional maturity, I believe, to really just kind of hold that in his heart. That maybe he spoke too soon. The enemy uses that. The point being, Jesus had three inner close disciples. He had 12. He had 70. I, I think it says in different times, Jesus not commit himself to them. There's this idea of maybe we need to keep some of those things in our heart. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart. Sometimes we wear emotions on our sleeves. That's me. Sometimes we kind of show everyone everything we're feeling and thinking at that time, and God's like, this one needs to stay close. You see, he says, I told no, I told no one. I didn't even tell the priests. I didn't tell the nobles. This was between me and my God. Twice he says this. Can we look at the next phrase in verse 12? Because I, I will put it up here. It was just so profound to me. Uh, not just he told no, no one, but he says what God had put in my heart to do. He goes, God put this in my heart to do this. I didn't make this up. I didn't create this. God put this in my heart. You know, the only way I can describe this feeling, if you know what I'm talking about, is there comes a point in time in your life where it is terrible grammar, but you can't not do something. Like, I just can't not do this. Like, why are you doing that? I don't know. I just can't not do it. <laughs> I literally have to do it. It was one of those things for my wife and I, when we were praying through this church plant in July of 2016, we had our first prayer meeting at our house, 
It's almost been three years since this first prayer meeting. And at the end of the prayer meeting, it was like we had this sense of we can't not do this. That's the only way we could like put it. One of the most encouraging things I think for my wife and I was after that prayer meeting. It was July 6, 2016. I remember because it's in my journal. <laughs> but at the end of the night, um, after the prayer meeting was over, I wrote down two words. And I didn't tell my wife what those words were. And I just said, what do you feel like God spoke to you? Like, what do you feel like was the gist of this night? What do you feel like God placed in your heart? And she goes, well, I feel like there's two different thoughts, and they're kind of competing thoughts. I'm like, okay, what's the first one? She goes, the first one's to rest. I feel like God's telling me to rest and not be anxious. I'm like, okay. What's the next thing? She goes, I feel like God's telling us to go and to build. I feel like we need to do this. She goes, but it makes no sense because I'm told to rest and I'm told to build, but it doesn't make any sense to me. And I, my words I wrote down were rest and build. And I'm like, well, this is what I feel like the Lord showed me. It was rest and build. And it's one of those things where you're like, I just, we just can't not do it. We want to rest as we do it. We want to enjoy the Lord as we do it, but we just can't not avoid this anymore. There's something with Nehemiah where God put this in his heart to do it. And he's like, I can't not do this anymore. And I want us to understand something so key. The fact that he told no one is a big deal. You know, because I think we do live in a time where we want to create a buzz or excitement rather than just like, God, I want to think about the long term here. So the idea, I wrote it this way, is uh, if you rally people without a plan, it can create movement but not lasting change. Uh, Passion without direction. Enthusiasm without information. It might have created a buzz but without substance. You see, I think it's very easy for people to to create a buzz these days and then it's like, well, that buzz came and it went. How do we create a vision that is lasting, that is for the restoration, the good of the people? So here's what Nehemiah does. The this, this second point is very key, that Nehemiah, the work is examined. So he's walking around the city. The walls are probably about a mile and a half to two and a half miles around, okay? Probably around two miles. And he's walking around, going through these, these different gates. He's looking at the brokenness. And he's at night. No one knows what's happening. And I do love this because leaders, a lot of times, will do things at night when everyone else is sleeping. They'll ha- get vision when everyone else is at rest. And he's walking around at night, and he needs to see the brokenness. I don't know if you have a boss who doesn't like bad news. And they're like, just don't, like, tell me the good news. Like, uh, it's not good news. Like, well, don't talk to me. Like, I, you need to know. Uh, there's something with Nehemiah where he's like, I need to assess the situation and see how really bad it is. I'm not afraid of the bad news. I'm not afraid of all the work it's going to take. It might take a while, it might be a lot of work, but I need to truly know the state of our city. And there's something about examining and saying, I need to slow down and not just react and examine the circumstances and how bad is it. And he needs to go through the gates and see the rubble and see the brokenness, and this is exactly what he does. And I do believe that this is where God speaks, this is where God moves, where you're alone. I think some of my best times are like my family's in bed and I'm just alone with God. That is, I think, when God speaks the most probably because I can just actually hear nothing um, <laughs> for once because you just hear babies crying. It's great. Um, but there's times where just God speaks and moves and we're alone with him. Listen, get alone with God. If you haven't felt like you've heard the voice of God in a while, get alone with him at night. Get alone with him in the morning. Just be alone with him and walk around. Go outside, go for a walk and say, God, speak to me. I need, I need, I need you to speak. God, help me care about what you care about. What do you see? We might see not physical brokenness, but help me see the spiritual brokenness in our city. We might even see physical brokenness. God, help me see what you see. The work is examined. And then, number three is, the work is good. Can we just acknowledge, the work is good. It's a good work. Let's look at verse 17. So the work is good, verse 17. So Nehemiah, he he walks around, then he gathers the people, it says, and he, he said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Come, And let us build the wall of Jerusalem, 
that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. All right, the work is good. It's a good work. So Nehemiah gives one of those like little, it's a small speech. It's a very short speech, uh, but it's kind of like one of those little gladiator brave heart speeches, right? Where he just says something. He goes, look at the brokenness. It's time for us to do something about it. And they respond themselves. Now, uh, it's just fun. If you've ever studied people who gave really good motivational speeches, you can't, you'll always see like Winston Churchill. Um, Winston Churchill who's the prime minister of England during World War II and the idea that, like, there's a weaker prime minister, and he kind of comes in and brings some strength and stability to that region. Uh, but he gave some of the best speeches. Here's this one little snippet of a speech. He says this. Maybe you've heard this one. He says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. And it's a little bit longer than that. But he remember, he's like, we'll fight him on the beaches. We'll fight him on, the, on Mars. Like, he just names everything. We'll fight him everywhere. He's like, we're going to do what we have to do to win. This is like Nehemiah's little version of that speech. He goes, look at the brokenness. Our, our, our city lies in waste. We are reproach. People mock us. It's time for us to build. And I do want us to walk through this. Look at verse 17, how he, he does this. Because he does this first and foremost. He goes, our city lies in waste. Here's what he does. He's like, look at the need. You need to examine the need. See the need. See the brokenness. Look around you. Josephus, a historian, tells us that he actually probably gathered all the people at the temple, the temple being the only thing that's kind of rebuilt, not like in its former glory, but the temple being rebuilt, everything else around it's in ruins. So he brings them up to the temple, kind of in the middle of the city, and goes, look around. 360 view. Everything's broken. This is not okay. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, this idea of habitation. There's this like psychological concept of habitation where you, we just kind of get used to things after a while. Sometimes you need someone from the outside to walk in and say, no, no, this is broken. This is not good. That is what's happening at this moment. This is not good. This is bro- Look around us. Not only that in verse 17, but here's what it says. He says, come and let us build the wall that we may no longer be a reproach. And I want to point out two things. He goes, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Do you notice like the plurality of language he's using? He's saying we, us, us need to build this. We need to do this. Not you, not I, and just follow me. We need to do this. He's using this language to kind of say this, is, this is, involves all of us. Nehemiah just got there. Nehemiah's never probably been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't there for 13 years with Ezra doing nothing like the people have. Nehemiah could have came in very cynical and going, guys, you've been here for 13 years. How is the city still in ruins? Are you kidding me? Like, Nehemiah could have come across that way. But he goes, let us, we, we, I'm part of this. We're part of the solution. In verse 18, the people hear that, and they respond. And, oh, actually, verse 17, still moving to verse 18. After he says that, he says, I told them the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. He's like, I want you to know that God's hand is on me. The king gave me his army. The king gave me his materials. The king gave me everything. God's hand and favor is on Like, this is the moment and this is the time is what he's saying. We have the hand and favor of God on us. He's not trying to be like, I'm the coolest thing ever. This is the best thing ever. But he's saying we do have God's favor to move and act at this point in time. And he's like, you need to see that God's favor is on us. Church, when I was like praying just for, for this time and for us, I honestly look around and I go, I'm so amazed by what God has done and is doing. It's incredibly humbling to even pray over a team going to Haiti. It's incredibly humbling to see people getting saved this last year. In the last two years of our church existence, we've seen about 25 people baptized. 
to see people find forgiveness and hope and meaning in Jesus, follow Jesus, to see people say, I want my family, my marriage to get better. I've seen you guys come together and provide groceries and food for people, help pay for rent for people. It is unbelievable where I go, God's good hand is on you guys. It's, it's incredibly humbling to watch God do this work. And, and he's going, God's hand is on this. I, if God's hand is on this, nothing can stop this. He's going, listen, I know there's enemies around us who don't want this to be rebuilt, but God's hand and favor is on us. So the people hear this in response. What do they say now in verse 18? They say, so they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Let us rise up and build. Again, they take ownership. We're going to rise up. We're going to build. We're going to do something about this. Here's my hope. Um, I think there are times where I can become cynical in my own heart, or you, you talk to people who are cynical in different ways, and I hear it put like this way, like, why doesn't the church do this? Why, don't, why doesn't the church act in this way? And, and I would love for the language of the people, like it changes, like, let us rise and build. Not why isn't the church, why am I not? Why are we not? Not like the church is them and I'm not that. Like, no, no, like that's us. Like, I would love for this, this ownership of language. Like, let us rise and build. It's not the churches. It's, it's us. That's us. It's we. It's, it's, it's all of us included. They would let us rise and build. And we're going to see this building process in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. We're going to see them build. They do a very thorough job, a very good job. And they do a very good work. But here's why I say this. Because I want you to not miss this point. Um, there's a sense and a side to this where Nehemiah, even with the king's army, even with the king's provisions, by no means could he ever do this by himself. This is not a one-man job at, at all. And so the people are going, we're going to take ownership, we're going to do something. And, you know, this week in preparation, this is really random, I was reading about Canadian geese. I don't know if you ever see those in your backyard. <laughs> You're like, well, it's a weird thing to yeah. go. Um, if you've ever seen, like, a, a Canadian geese flying around, they kind of, you know, I think they're here until June, like, right now. Um, there's this idea, and it's, it is interesting, because I remember, you know, you see this, and you always think, why do they fly in that V? And some of you might know, but... The idea of, of geese, and there's engineers and people who like study this, they fly in that V shape. The first one is doing all of the hard work, and he's kind of breaking the air and dispersing the air a bit while the others are following his lead. And after a while, that first bird will go to the back, and a new bird will take a spot. And they'll, the scientists have studied this and said that geese, when they fly in that V kind of shape form, can fly 72% longer than if one geese was flying by itself. The fact that there's one bird doing a lot of the hard work, but it's breaking up for everyone else. Then he goes to the back and gets the rest. A new bird steps, and it's like they fly longer together than they could ever alone. And, and there's a side of this work, we could never do this alone. I would look around literally every week, and you see people getting here to set up. They're smiling, they're laughing. I'm like, it's like 8 o'clock, how are you doing that? They're happy. They're tearing down afterward. They're running kids ministry right now. I know that that's many of you are almost like more than half our church serves in that capacity or in a group and outreach and serving and loving our community. It is so humbling to watch. And it's like, man, we are so much better together in this. Nehemiah might have a lot of resources and he might be pretty smart. He might be the king's guy, but he, there's no way he could ever do this alone. And let me say this, the work is good. And it reminds me, we need to put our hands to this. We have the best work in church. We have a better work than even rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Do we get that? Rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, it, Jerusalem got destroyed again and again and again, and we'll go there and next year, and you'll see that things are built on top of each other, and you can't really see Nehemiah's wall. There's a new wall after Nehemiah's wall. Things come and go. We are building a kingdom which cannot be destroyed, amen? We are building something way better than just even the city of Jerusalem. We're bringing God's kingdom to earth. The work is good. Church, the work is good. Number four is this. The work is mocked. It's mocked. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. 
Verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed. They literally laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? All right, we saw these guys in verse 10 earlier. Uh, these are like the three evil stooges throughout the book of Nehemiah that like, are just constantly coming together, mocking the work, belittling the work. And let me just say this. Anytime God's people come together to do God's work, there's going to be mockery. There's going to be laughing. There's going to be despising. I mean, just guaranteed. It's one of those things where like, I'm not surprised anymore if, there, if there's not. Like, I'm surprised if there's not mocking and laughing and, and jeering. You know, when we first moved into Quiet Waters Elementary, within like three months, we find out there's a guy who's trying to kick us out through his atheist organization, and he's literally taking pictures of the school, and he's putting my name, my family's name on his Facebook, saying, this is the pastor, let's ask him to leave. This is his kid's name, let's ask him to leave. Uh, it's a very frustrating and you know, sense of season of our ministry. We met with the, the police department. What I love about this is they found the guy at the school taking pictures and during school time, so an officer sees him, they charge him with trespassing, and now he's on Homeland Security's watch list, the, the officer told me, because he's posting about schools on Facebook with some sort of negative tone around it, and this was in about March of last year, which if you remember is right after the Parkland shooting. Not a, not a very wise guy. At a picture, at a school, taking pictures. And I go, ha, huh, some guy's laughing, mocking us, and he's like, now on home and security's watch list. God is good. Um, now I'm laughing back. This is bad. But I, I look at this and I go, anytime there's a people going together and saying, let us rise and build, let us do something, there's going to be people that says, we need to stop this. We need to end this. Listen, it's when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone says, they're just drunk. Don't take them serious. Paul going into cities and going, ah, oh, he's a babbler. That was Paul's reputation. He's like, oh, it's a, the babblers here. It's Jesus being mocked and jeered on the cross over and over again. And he's just saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, anytime there's a great work of God, there's going to be mockery. There's going to be jabs. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 16, verse 9 says this, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Can we just hear that? Many times there'll be an open door from God and he goes, but there's many adversaries. And we got to expect that when God, doesn't, when God gives an open door, it doesn't work. There are many adversaries behind the door opens. And you're like, door number one, uh, it's an adversary. And you're like, but the Lord, you're in this. You open that, you're doing this. The work is mocked. But here's what Nehemiah says in response. He basically says, we will be remembered forever. And he says, so the work, number five, is memorialized. The work is memorialized. Look at verse 20. He says, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. We say this, the work is memorialized, and he goes, and you have no part in it. You'll have no memorial here. You will not be remembered for those who build. You'll, re you'll be remembered for something else. Then chapter 3, by the way, can we just kind of keep that train of thought? Verse 20 bleeds into chapter 3, and he goes, here are the names of the families and the leaders who helped build the gates. So chapter 3 is going to be all about them rebuilding the gates. The gates are key. The gates are significant. Why? Uh, the gates are where people came in, whether I'm a shepherd bringing in sheep towards a temple, I would come through the sheep gate. The dung gate, you guess what would go through that gate, out of that gate, <laughs> into the valley. The idea was there's different gates where people or things would enter, and the gates where people would gather and discuss and talk business and talk life and talk culture, and if we see in chapter 3, them building the gates, and here's why God is, I love how God is so good. He goes, we're going to write down the families, the names, and remember their work. We're going to memorialize them. We're going to remember those who sacrificed and helped build. So let me say this, the work is memorialized. Church, please hear this today. In Hebrews chapter 6, which I, this is so fitting, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, listen, our God is not unjust 
to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. What does the Bible say in the New Testament for us? Just like God remembered their work and labor of love, the Bible says our God's going to remember our work and labor of love. You're going to be, the work that you've done for Jesus. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you'll by no means lose a reward. You'll have a reward. You'll be remembered for what you did for Jesus. Let me say this, they're memorialized. That God's like, write them down, Nehemiah. Write down them and their families, those who helped build the gates. Write them down. The work is memorialized. God's like, I'm not going to forget. Can I, can I just remind you of that? Anything you've ever done for God, it's not like God's like, oh, I missed that one. He's not going to forget your work and labor of love. Do not do it to be seen by men. Know that your heavenly Father sees, and he will reward you. Your work is memorialized. That is good news for us. This is such good news. Actually, in chapter 3, one little phrase I had to point out was there's a people who are memorialized for something different. In chapter 3, verse, I think, 5, it says this, um, the the toko, the tokites, I'm going to try it, the tekiotes, uh, they made repairs, but their d- nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. He's like, and then this family built, and then this family built, and he goes, oh, but this, those techites, those tech guys, I don't know, I'm just kidding, but those techoids, he goes, you know what, they were the nobles, the nobles did not work. The nobles thought they were too good for it, and that's how they're remembered. That's how they're memorialized. Our God is so good to remember the work we've done for him. Can I tell you, there's 42 different groups in that chapter working in seven different neighborhoods. I love how organized Nehemiah is. It says there's men and women working together. There's priests and outsiders working together. Guys, it's not just one person or one people group. It's literally men and women, different people from all social class and standards, poor and wealthy, and they're working together for for this great work. Again, one thought is this. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Right? No one can do everything. But everyone here can do something. All of us can do something. We are better together in that sense. And he goes, we can do it. And he goes, so families are working together. And I love that. When you see families working, me for chapter three, here's my takeaways. I'm just giving you the short, brief version of my chapter three takeaways. The families are working together. And I'm like, God, let me build my family. Let me serve the homeless with my family. Let the kids see it. Let, it. let it be a part of our lives. Let us do this as a family. Let us do this as a church family. Let us work in different neighborhoods. Let us organize 42 teams, seven neighborhoods. God, let us get that organized. There's something beautiful about chapter 3, even though it's difficult to read. And you can read it. It's a little bit difficult. But there's something so beautiful. God's like, I remember your work and labor of love. Amen? And let me just point this out, and we'll end with this thought, is this. This work was always memorialized. Here we are talking about it a couple thousand years later. But I want to say something else. There's a greater work. There is a greater work that was memorialized. There's a greater work that's remembered. And that is when Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he says, I want you, from this point on, when you come together, I want you to take the cup, and there's, there's wine in it. I want you to remember my blood that is shed for you. And I want you to take this cracker, this bread, and I want you to be reminded of my body that was broken for you. And do this always in remembrance of me. Memorialize this moment, this moment of communion. And we are going to remember Jesus' death and resurrection as we take communion today. Because even though this was a great work that was memorialized, guys, there's a greater work you and I rest in. That is the finished work of Jesus. There's a greater memorial that we are here to celebrate when we come together, and that is Jesus. Amen? I'm so glad God remembers our work, but let's remember his work, because his work is way better. His work is finished. His work is whole and complete. So you and I can remember the work of Jesus on the cross. So I'm going to pray. We're going to pass out communion. I'm going to ask, as you get that cracker, as you get that juice, just pray over it. God, thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed so that I could be forgiven. 
Listen, if you're in this place and you're still new to Christianity, you go, I don't know if I believe this. There's no need to take it. But if this is something, this is your hope, your trust, everything you look, you look to for salvation, just say, God, thank you for this. I want to remember you and memorialize that moment on the cross, that moment of resurrection here and now. Let us pray, and we're going to pass out communion. And as you hear worship going, church, just feel free to take it as you're led. But memorialize, remember the moment of Jesus' work, of Jesus' greatest work for us. So let's pray. Father, we just um, are thankful for the fact that Nehemiah was not just a talker, but a doer. God, I just ask for ourselves, everyone in this place, that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. That, God, we'd have a vision to seek and to save the lost, to be a, a, a community following you, Jesus, seeking the renewal of all things. And God, I just, I just ask that as we slow down and just take communion, let us remember the great work, the work of your blood that was shed for us. God, the work that you, you gave your body for us, that God, though you die, we shall live. We, we just thank you so much, God, that Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life, that if we believe in you, though we die, we shall live. God, I just ask that in this place, that our hearts would look to you, trust in you, rest in you. That, Jesus, we truly rest, enter into your rest. And that as we enter into your rest, let us build from a place of just rest. So, God, we just thank you. We ask that you'd speak and move now as we worship, as we remember you. In your name, Jesus, amen.